Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Angie Smith, theatre and dance producer at the Barbican, and I'm here to introduce another fascinating conversation from our Inspired series, where we ask an artist to invite someone who's influenced their creative lives to share the stories behind their connection. In this episode, the London-based artist Jamie Hale and award-winning comedian Hannah Gadsby. Jamie is a curator, poet, writer, performer and director, and is an expert in disability health and social care policy. They first performed at the Barbican as part of Transpose, a showcase that shines a spotlight on the talents of trans artists and their allies. They then later developed a solo show, Not Dying, through our Open Labs programme. This was performed in the pit as part of Cryptic Pit Party, a mixed bill of work by disabled artists, which they also curated. They've also performed at the Tate Modern and the Lyric Hammersmith and were part of the Grey Eye Ensemble. Hannah Gadsby is an award-winning comedian, writer, actor and TV presenter from Tasmania, Australia, with a comedy career spanning over a decade. Her 2017 stand-up show, Nanette, won the award for Best Comedy at the Adelaide, Melbourne and Edinburgh Festivals. It toured internationally and went on to have an Emmy Award-winning Netflix special. Hannah's 11th solo show, Douglas, received widespread critical acclaim, selling out the Royal Festival Hall in London, the Opera House in Sydney and the Kennedy Centre in Washington, D.C., and was yet another Emmy-nominated Netflix special. Over now to Jamie and Hannah. My name's Jamie Hale, and I'm a poet, storyteller, sometimes comedian, who did a show at the Barbican called Not Dying, which was about not dying. And when I was asked by the Barbican to think about an artist whose work had really inspired and shaped my own, the first person who came to mind was Hannah Gadsby, whose construction of narratives of trauma and humour in Nanette really helped me think about how I would approach talking about my own experiences of coming very close to dying and then not, and of having what felt like quite a tight pro prognosis that then became a lot more open. Having been influenced by Nanette, being able to speak to Hannah Gadsby was a great opportunity because I wanted to think about the things that we had in common in terms of turning trauma into art, being 
disabled and or neurodivergent and how it is to be an artist who is not what the arts worlds were moving in see as normal and what it means to create work from that perspective. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I, I will admit that I was a bit like, I'd really like to talk to Hammy Gadsby, but that's a bit of a long shot. And Bernie <laughs> just said she'd see what she could do, and here we are. I put a solo show on at the Barbican um, in October of last year that I was kind of writing the year before. And while I was writing it, I watched Nanette along with probably the rest of the world. And my, my show was called Not Dying. Um, and it was very much about a period of time when it looked like I was dying and then uh, uh, the effect of a radical new treatment changing things and maybe not dying and that back and forth. But it was also very much framed around taking people from like the, the sort of tragedy of mortality into this really challenging look at disability politics and the world and throwing everything upside down. And so watching the net was really helpful for me in terms of how to structure kind of turning trauma into art in a way that doesn't let the audience get away from their complicity in the structures that cause that trauma. I watched the link you sent me. Thank you. Yes, um, it's fantastic. It was a really liked, interesting piece to do. I certainly did clock your uh, not backing down on the, on the sort of discomfort I like. Which I don't know if I'd have really had a sense of how to structure if I hadn't kind of sat down with Nanette and a pen and paper and gone right so you go to you do this bit here and then you go back to this story later and then tell it in a, in a different way and that kind of framing and reframing of narratives of trauma. Um, yeah well that was that was the centerpiece of Nanette was uh, you know I mean it came from life you know like I realized the damage that protecting other people from my trauma was only compounding my trauma. So I'm super glad you got that out of that, you know, for yourself and your audiences. And I think it's maybe quite easy to kind of package one's trauma in a palatable way when making art that allows the audience to kind of see the trauma, but without having to really grapple with it. Um, I could very easily have done a show about like, this is how miserable it is to be in hospital and people would have gone, oh, poor Jamie. And that would have been that. I think people struggle with narratives that are unfamiliar to them. Um, and I think there's a lot of experiences of trauma that are unfamiliar to too many people. Uh, so for example, in my show, I, I talk about a specific traumatic experience of mine, but, you know, having said that it's not necessarily the bravest thing I could have done uh, in that show uh, because as far as things that have happened to me, it was one I knew uh, to a certain extent, people could um, grapple with, as like I was, I was, uh, you know, beaten by a stranger. Um, whereas there are other where harm was uh, done to me by people I knew, and that is a much more difficult trauma to sort of push people into that space. But I was already pushing people fairly. <laughs> Uh, fairly into fairly difficult territory. So I, I wouldn't call it a, a complete wuss out. Um, but, you know, it's difficult with art because you need, to, you need your audience. You need to bring them along with you. So it's, it, you know, the more sort of you're pushing, the, the more difficult balance it is. Yeah, I found that I had to tone down some of the more angry sections of my show 
because sort of early feedback was that I was slightly losing my audience because they were either feeling like we're already doing the work. Why are you yelling at us for doing the work? Or they were like, we're disabled and we know this already. Why are you yelling it at us? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Um, uh, I think, you know, that the process of creating a show like that helps you. Uh, I, or it certainly helped me uh, process my anger to a certain extent because you're learning, you know, to share it. Uh, and in that process, you, you know, you, you really learn the bounds of what other people can take, what you have to do in order to, you know, uh, put stuff out in the world. You know, I did in that show quite a lot of protecting or just sort of the, the shape of the show, the structure of the show had to, you know, was so carefully constructed to both to protect in myself and my audience, so particularly people who could be triggered by the, the um, subject matter I was talking about. It was a sort of a reaction to people complaining about people complaining about being triggered. Um, and in order to uh, tackle that, you have to, you know, talk about triggering subject matter. Uh, and, and one of the goals I set out or one of the, the questions I was asking in that show is, is it possible to, take these things head on and not do further damage to vulnerable people. Also bring attention to it in, in a way that people who, you know, often when you're talking about things that are difficult, people will do anything not to engage with it. Um, so that, you know, so I had to create a show where it was impossible for people to back away, but also not, you know, not do further damage or traumatize people who, who don't need that. It's a really difficult line, I guess, also because you're speaking to lots of different audiences and you'll have, you'll have had the people that followed you for a long time. And then all of the new people who, I mean, like myself, discovered you through Nanette. Um, I came to see Douglas uh, by escaping from the hospital. I took my drip with me and just sat in the corner of the Royal Festival Hall like, I'm not going oh, to miss this. Wonderful. I'm so it glad you great. got to come and see it. Yeah, because being in the room is special. Like, uh, it's one thing that, that you know, having it out on Netflix brings it to, um, you know, such a broad audience. I'd never physically be able to perform to, but I, I still believe in the power of public performance. Being in a room, um, experiencing something with a group of strangers, I think there's something very powerful in that. And With the whole, with trigger, triggering material and navigating it, I so someone came up to me after one of the performances of not dying and was like you know all of the material about death that was really upsetting and I yeah. sort of sat there like you came to a show called not dying and then were upset that I talked about death I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are triggered by death because you know it is really what's gonna happen like I just don't under but that's you know my, my particular brutal point of view I think it's just like you know if we don't why aren't we talking about dying more? We're all going to, like, I just, like, we need more language around it. We actually need, you know, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting <laughs> just throwing it in people's faces, but I really don't think we have enough constructive dialogue around death. No, and I think that does a lot of people a disservice um, in terms of then not having language to describe their own experiences or not having the confidence to describe those experiences because it's such a taboo subject. I was also like, 
when you've when you've been making art out of trauma how have you avoided being consumed by the trauma in the making of the art or have you not been able to avoid that I, th I don't think it's quite possible to avoid the the trauma in it but you know trauma is insidious and it affects your day to day it affects the you know if you if you can't get free of it then it's you know not performing it isn't going to help like because it's 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 sort of really and i think i think more people are walking around with un unacknowledged trauma than than they understand like people watch a show like mine and and probably think they don't have trauma in their life and i i would beg to differ i think i think there's a lot of uh trauma just everywhere i see it everywhere you know and i, I think part of the issue is, is people think that only extreme experiences should register trauma um and, and i just don't subscribe to that at all i think it's difficult when one's had both the extreme experiences and also experiences that would be kind of not necessarily seen as having been as extreme and it, what ends up marking you isn't necessarily the extremity of the experience. Yeah, sometimes I think it's the little micro micro traumas that can weigh you down. <laughs> I think whether the sort of trauma or, or issues that you have that in order to get over them doesn't seem superhuman. I think that's, you know, I think people in order to acknowledge or understand the narrative around trauma, the, they really want to hear something that is, you know, really something they can't imagine having to go through, which makes it really difficult to talk about traumas when, you know, especially when you go, this little thing wrecked me. Yeah. And people are like, ah, that does it. And, and what's important in these stories is the, the, like the overcoming of the trauma, like in those parts is like, you know, this little thing wrecked me and it took way too much effort to get over it. But that effort is what it is, the, the story, I think. But too many people are like, you know, we're, we're trained with the stories we tell each other that it has to be excessive amounts of uh, unimaginable pain in order to register as qualified trauma. And for me, it's often not been necessarily the life-threatening hospital admissions that have been the most traumatic bit. It's been the admission for a weekend when I thought I'd gotten out and escaped and everything was well again. And then you just go in with a minor infection and you're like, oh. So I think it's also the traumas that disturb our perception of our realm of safe within the world. That even if we've experienced massive traumas, it's the ones that come into spaces maybe that we thought we were okay in, whether that's walking down the street at night, but you're in a familiar space or in your own home, it's, I feel like it's those ones for me at least that have been the most significant. I believe that's kind of what trauma is, is feeling unsafe. Uh, and when your community or your uh, world doesn't help you feel safe again, or, you know, suddenly takes that safety away, whether it's circumstance or, or willful ignorance, um, then that's, that's traumatizing. And when you're already exhausted, as I imagine you were, then that's when the, what seems like a, you know, in the scheme of your things, a little thing, it's not, because it's compounding. It doesn't make nearly such good art though. No, true. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I guess that's the challenge. It's fine. For me, at least it's been choosing the traumas to turn into art that are either the 
that that well, will work best as art as well as I could argue with you on that because if you're a straight white middle class European situation then the tiniest of traumas people find really thrilling like there's so many stories of like oh my girlfriend left me and like I just don't feel sad mate but they get films after films after films so you know that's the training of the audience as opposed to you know anything else and I guess also the audience you're expecting because I think because you I think with the net is it fair to say that you suddenly got quite a lot of different audiences I don't know had you had those audiences prior to the net or yeah look I had a fairly broad audience I've been building up over the years um in my stand-up career but it wasn't a huge audience but I'd, I had a fairly you know as, as queer as I situated myself and felt it wasn't you know I'd, I'd get a few mums and dads in there you know um but it's it's the it's the space of stand-up comedy that is really straight that world is really heteronormative to the extreme, you know, or is, I mean, you know, of course there are the exceptions, but the spaces, particularly when you're, you're starting out, you know, people always point to the exceptions that have made it and, uh, you know, like, oh, there's such and such and such and such. Uh, <laughs> but when you're starting out, when you're working the, the clubs, you know, and don't even get me started on disabilities. Like they're, literally inaccessible um just on my experience of you know having undiagnosed autism those spaces uh, were hostile and i had no idea really why i did you know i didn't understand the way i was you know processing the world but yeah you know so it's all the things that make it fairly in, in, in you know hostile environments i suppose i because i i my I kind of came up through trans art spaces and disability art spaces. I was very used to speaking to an audience that was at least in theory sympathetic to my message. Like in practice, very few gay spaces are actually accessible, but sort of queer people at an event at the Barbican would at least like to think that they're doing the right thing, even if when they actually examined things, they weren't at all. And with not dying, while it was in as part of a disability arts showcase, I got, I think, probably a lot more non-disabled people there than I'd anticipated and realised that I was trying to reach two very divergent groups with the same message. It's really a hard, hard thing to do, but that is the power of storytelling. You know, telling a story means that you can invite people in. And what's extraordinary to my mind that... Um, about the response to Nanette was the diversity of pe people and experiences that found their way into find, you know, finding something of worth from that show. Because when I wrote it, it was, it was really angry and it was meant to, it was meant to alienate people because I'd give it, I just had enough of accommodating. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um and so it still blows my mind that, you know, I remember once I was in LA doing the rounds as you do. And this Australian woman who's over there been over there working, but she was like, just not my kind of person at all. Like she was very tall and classic Sydney blonde, you know, probably had a, I Googled her and she did have some kind of Instagram, you know, a lot of floral frocks and drinks with fruit in it. You know, like I, I, I don't know how else to explain her because I just don't have anything to do with people like that nice enough but just like wow enthusiastic about stuff <laughs> don't register but she was sort of like you know saying to me and it felt a little condescending going oh we're all so proud of you you know you've done us proud and I'm like I didn't do it for you who are you but I, of course I didn't say it I practice filters but it is extraordinary that you know someone like that who is almost the person I was going shut up to <laughs> show still managed to find something so i guess understanding who your audience is is a is a is something you have to consider in order to then not consider and i guess that also speaks to what you were saying about how many people have kind of undisclosed or unexamined trauma in that they're like people that people are finding that in your show even if their experiences are very different yeah yeah it's a, it's a very humbling lesson for me to learn. I think I, when I put Not Dying on, I was quite angry at the point of actually doing the show because I was doing it five months into what turned out to be a six-month hospitalisation. And so much to the stress of the Barbican, whether I would make it on stage that night depended on how effectively I could sweet-talk the doctors in the morning. And so I would get there and I would just, I was putting it on, I was just like, all of this anger that I wrote into the show partly for structure and impact rather than emotion was suddenly actually there as a, an emotional experience of performing the show. And w when I was kind of re-watching the net, I was thinking about the ways in which you express anger and then dial it back. And I was curious about the expression and the feeling and moving in and out of that space each night. Well, I performed that show so many times and there's two parts of that. One was that at a particular point in the show, the last 15 minutes, the reaction of the audience was always the same. It was this shocked silence. Um, and that feels the same to me every time. So there became a, you know, in certain point in, in stand up, unlike theater, it's a responsive performance. So, 
you know, you don't deliver the lines the same way every night because your audience is different. You respond to the audience. And I think that's one of the chief differences between um, uh, stand-up and, and theatre. So doing that as a, as a stand-up comedian was, was, was incredibly difficult because my gut, you know, my instinct and, and that not just an instinct, it's my, it's how, you know, it's my skill set. It's what I do. It's like when there's extreme tension, I know how to break it. And, and when you're working as a comic, you, you really want that tension. So then you can smash it through with a punchline. And so what was really difficult for me and was not breaking that tension. So that in itself sort of built me up, you know, this level of, of sort of, you know, fear, I guess. And it never did. It just didn't, it just didn't ever not affect me to talk about those things in front of strangers. Every time I was leading up to the real punch, we'll call it is that, you know, I was scared. I was scared because, you know, in the early phases of the the show, uh, I did get heckled. I once got heckled at Soho theater in London, which was, and it was brutal. It felt brutal. It felt like it, it, you know, this man just basically said, you know, you know, one of these silences is like bullshit, you know, and it was just like, you know, everyone's just like, and I then tore strips off him because I'm in this heightened state. It was just, it was just awful. So that happened a few times enough for me to feel genuine fear um, going into the show. Um, but not enough for me to stop doing it, to know that for most of the times it, it worked. The other thing about it is that the creation of something, it's like the way that you write something is not necessarily how it's going to, to be on stage. That's certainly my experience with stand-up. And it, so it's always a dialogue with the audience. And the fear I felt going into every performance of it gave my... I guess performance a certain edge every time. The one, the, the most different performance of Nanette, sort of really hit at home at how consistently it went across, was when I performed it after it went out on Netflix and I went to the Montreal Comedy Festival. And so it was the first time I performed it live where people had seen the show. So there wasn't that shock or that, you know, curveball, we'll call it, that most people experienced in the theatre. And people began applauding setups and I won't say singing along with the punchlines, but the, the, the stand-up equivalent and the show just doesn't work. It's no tension. I mean, people enjoyed it, but it, for, for, for me, it was like, I'm like, I don't actually understand how to communicate this now. Well, yeah, when I rewatched Nanette, it was really interesting because I was able to watch it as a piece that I could explore and examine knowing the end at the beginning which gave it a completely different zone to be in, but one where I, I didn't feel like any of the tension was lost through understanding it better. But then I think maybe that's a difference between being in a big audience versus just being in a small, a small room watching it. And the difference is that I can't respond to anything. Like, so in the room, like, cause I'm not having a conversation anymore. It, it just is a, it's a document almost, but in the room, when people are responding, my, you know, you just don't get the same rhythms. So you're like, I'm used to this 
thing that I'm saying to land a certain way and then you interrupted halfway through. I think someone yelled out halfway through going, you want a hug? I'm like, no, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I found that when I've performed vulnerability on stage, people have responded with sympathy as if that was what I was looking for rather than as if I was performing it as a, as a part of something bigger. Well, I think that, you know, these kinds of reactions are people trying to diffuse their own tension. Yeah. You know, like when people sort of heckle, they, they cannot, they cannot deal with, you know, not being in control of, of, of their, their reaction. And that's, that's the, that's the thrill of performance. One of the reasons I was really keen to talk to you was also because as, as somebody who is very much a disabled artist in the sense of kind of the social model of disability and the idea that it's not that there's something wrong with me it's that I'm a disabled artist because the world doesn't create accessible spaces. If everywhere they really was, don't, do they? If everywhere was accessible, then I would no longer be disabled by definition. Um, I'm also, it's a, it's a strange categorization as a neurodivergent artist. I was, I was very interested talking to you and wondering where you saw yourself around, around autism and disability arts. And I mean, I'm, I'm careful not to place myself. I don't think that's the, that's the job of the performer to place themselves. But what I'm striving toward is opening up a space where neurodivergent people can create art that is neurodivergent. And that, that goes beyond just speaking about experiences, but actually creating pieces that make sense to people who don't think typically, um, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a really difficult space because often our understanding of, you know, particularly autism is through, you know, often it's being written about and by straight white men. And often, more often than not, it's being written by neurotypical people. So what that has created is a lot of art about neurodiversity is about what it looks like. It doesn't look like what people think it looks like because it's an experience. It's the way you bring the world in, process it, and then turn it back out in the world. And, and, and to witness neuro, neurodiversity is to witness uh, difference. Um, and, but witnessing difference is not the same as experiencing difference. And I think if there's a hope I have, it's, you know, to shake shake it up a bit, you know, so people, you know, because my voice alone is not going to do it. We need, you know, you know, we need an appropriate amount of, of people because, uh, you know, my experience of, of autism is not, you know, not everybody's obviously, um, you know, but I mean, the reaction from people like who don't want to like me, um, it's been interesting. You know, I've been told all sorts of different ways that I cannot possibly have autism. And usually it's because I am not Dustin Hoffman, you know, pretty much. I mean, if, if they're of that age, um, I've even been told that I'm too fat to have autism. <laughs> it's my favorite. I'm obsessed with that. <laughs> this is possibly the most confused face I've ever pulled. <laughs> stunning it's a stunning thing to say to someone so much in every to sense unpack. of that word so much to unpack 
the implication being that they, they've reached out in order to let me know that they don't want me to have autism, which is an interesting impulse, first and foremost, in a way to silence me by not allowing me into a, a, a group of people who are silenced regularly. So it, it's kind of incredible. I guess to me, kind of coming up to the disability arts movement, I've encountered a lot of great autistic artists within that. Um, and I was wondering, because for me it was really incredible to see somebody autistic who was as successful as you, because it kind of said to me that you can experience a lot of access barriers and still be still become very successful as an artist, which is something I'd worried about a lot. Um, and I wondered about the kind of access barriers you'd faced as an artist. Well, I think uh, I, I often wonder how differently my experience would be if I'd have understood that I had autism. I think there's this sort of push and pull thing that went on in that I put myself repeatedly into situations and life, you know, trajectories they're really unfriendly for me. Like really would, you know, so I'd go the pattern of my touring schedule would mean that for three, four months of the year, I'd be incapable of doing anything, you know, not just performing, but even self-care. So it'd be this spin cycle of exhaustion. So I, I you know, do the Edinburgh fin Fringe Festival, but that cost me three months of my life of being a, a functional human. Um, you know, so, but that's not just, the, 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 the world I was in, but the way that I prepared myself uh, was insufficient because I didn't understand that um, the world is physically overwhelming and exhausting to me. I just, I just thought that I was lazy or fragile minded or something like that, but you know, so there's that question there. So there, yes, there are hostile, and I probably would have navigated them differently um, had I understood, you know, now I understand that I need time before, after, you know, any kind of interaction. But then once you understand that, there aren't actually, you can't actually maintain a career like that. You've got to, there's no, there's not a lot of allowance for time and space. And that even creeps into the more successful you are, um, you know, I've experienced kind of incredible success of, of late. Um, it's mind blowing, <laughs> but there's this, you know, the pandemic was the only thing that sort of stopped me. So it's like, I try to create space around, like I can't do anything. I need a rest. I'm exhausted. But even when you try and put it down in terms of like, no, I cease to function. My brain stops working. I cannot, I stop being able to speak. People don't actually hear that. They don't want to hear that because they can see you speak and they can see you in a social situation. And so they go, no, you're lying. Whereas if, cause they don't see it. I still struggle with that. And I don't suppose that that'll change soon. Like I just don't, the one wonderful thing that success has given me is a, you know, a little bit of financial security, which helps me make better decisions because money helps when you have a disability. It, it really helps. It allows you to take the time you need because you know that you're not going to then be unable to make rent or pay your bills or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, and it gives you choice. I also very much cannot people beyond a certain level, whether that's performing or anything else. And I've actually found that during the pandemic, I've been so much broader in my creative output than I usually would be because I've just, I like, I, I only left my home for something other than a hospital appointment for the first time a couple of days ago because I got my new wheelchair and I was like, I have to try it out because I have to cycle the battery in order to improve the battery life. Um, <laughs> which was definitely an excuse and I'm definitely sticking to it, but it was great to start getting out again. <laughs> um, but sort of during the pandemic, I ended up, I'm about 30,000 words into two separate novels. Um, I wrote a 120 page screenplay. Um, I got some of my work done right up until November for some of my next deadlines. And I'm yeah. certain that quite a lot of that partly will have been because I couldn't be distracting myself with other stuff because there was nowhere to go and distract myself with but also partly because a lot of the demands on my cognitive energy were reduced because I wasn't going out. Yep, exactly. I've, I've been very, I'm the same. Absolutely. And also um, I have a huge amount of social anxiety um, that's just disappeared. I have anxiety about where, you know, the pandemic and, um, you know, I actively worry about the well-being of, of, of all the people like there's that anxiety, but I may, <laughs> I don't have the social anxiety. Like it's, it's gone out of my life because there's no expectation for me to be normal right now. Everyone is living like an autistic person right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> They're not. That's a broad generalization and I regret it. But I mean, I, I, I see where you're going with the generalization. Thank you. Um, yeah. Like I, it was strange. I was very, very anxious at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I sort of, I, I, I knew that I would not be a priority for treatment if yes. I caught COVID because I use a ventilator part-time already. And so they're going to look at you and be a bit like, if you can't manage without a ventilator when you're well, do you really think you're going to be able to manage with a ventilator when you're sick? So it was nerve wracking. Um, but I managed to create, I wrote a sonnet cycle about that instead of just like curling up under my duvet and pretending the world didn't exist. Um, well, that's, that's the, uh, that's the gift of creativity. Isn't it just, that is the, that's one of my sort of biggest anxieties about um, the, the pandemic is the already vulnerable people, already marginalized people, already people that we as a society tend to describe as burdens. It's either going to help or make it so, so much worse, but I guess it's, I guess you've got to keep talking about it and it's going to get better. At To The Barbican, we're committed to identifying new talent, nurturing emerging artists and supporting innovative work. If you're able, please show your support by making a donation and help us to inspire more people to discover and love the arts. Text Barbican 5 to 70085 to donate £5 plus one standard rate message or visit barbican.org dot uk forward slash donate i was wondering because we we like, we both make art from places where we're kind of seen as different from the normal in varying ways and i was kind of wondering whether you found that that creates space for you or limits you or whether that's changed during your career being able to create it hasn't limited 
like it's kind of what I do and how I how I make sense of the world. I think where it becomes a real, real challenge and always has been, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is understanding who our audience is. So sometimes you just crave to speak to the rest of the people as if they already understand you and you're sharing something that we all understand, but you have to always seem to explain yourself first. And that, that for me, you know, especially in something as broad, uh, you know, such a broad audience as stand-up comedy. Every time I walk on stage, like I kind of have to explain myself. Less, less so these days. So understanding who your audience is and therefore it sort of means what do you create your art for? Like where's it going? Who's it going out to? Who wants it? How far can you push before you lose it all? Like these are, you know, but I, th- I always try and come back to being prepared to lose stuff comfort in order to be as truthful to my own experience as possible i guess i've found that i'm kind of invited to quite an extent at the moment to make work about what it means to be disabled or what it means to be transitioning or what it means to be to live somewhere in a liminal gender space but i feel like if i was like okay cool i want my next show to be about hill walking or whatever no you don't get that no, you don't. It's, it's really frustrating. Is they're like, oh, you have this experience, therefore these are the only ways you can plug into the rest of the world. I think, you know, like as soon as you know you're you're this, you don't get you get you get this platform for this reason, and that's the only way. Hopefully, that won't always be the case. It might not be in my lifetime, but you know, because to some extent, I mean, I'm willing to benefit from people's desire to have disabled voices in a room where they might not have wanted disabled voices previously um, and benefit from spaces being created that allow me to perform but there is always that wondering about whether I would be allowed a mainstream career and one of the things I struggled with before I got my break at the Barbican um, was the fact that I couldn't do what you would usually do in terms of like upstairs room at bars and tidy open (laughs) mic nights and like Mm -hmm. performing to audiences in a cellar because it was only the big enough spaces that could accommodate me. And even then the Barbican ended up putting a hoist and an adapted shower backstage because otherwise I would have been a bit stranded. Um, And you're not going to get that in your little local club. So it's how does one become a mainstream, for lack of a better word, artist? Uh, Yeah, no, it's, it's, there's so many hurdles, literal hurdles, we'll call them. Uh, I was lucky here in the sense that my career was sort of set out through the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which is a very proactive, in, you know, had some very proactive programs. I don't think I would have been a stand-up comedian had it not been for the the, the festival because I, I wouldn't have sought out those spaces that I had to um, conquer um, because they were so hostile. Once I got a few, you know, I found a space that was doing festival circuits, so I'd put on shows you know, I tried doing the, the the circuit in the UK for a while because in Australia you can't really do it because it's just not the population to support being a working comic unless you can afford to, you know, fly everywhere because it's so, such a vast country and that, that then eats up all your income. So I was trying out the UK and I couldn't do it because it, it requires such a, a lot of, you know, late night traveling, which I'm not keen on as a as someone with my past in trauma um (laughs) but also executive function like to coordinate your gigs 
Oh, like it really, you really need to be good at business. <laughs> and I'm not. I am not. Nor am I. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a nightmare at it. No, I, one of the reasons that, that Nanette spoke to me so much was because I'd had a, a sort of traveling back late night from a show um, with Emily, my wife, we were performing together. And we'd sort of been called faggots by a guy on a train. And I was kind of like, well, me, maybe, maybe not. Depends what day it is and what mood I'm in. Her, no, no, you've, you've, other one, other one. And so hearing that story both times and the way that you turned it into, in, into humour and then challenge. I know that's sort of cycling back to something we discussed earlier, but when you talked about late night travel, it just, it just reminded mm. me of that. And sort of now when I travel after performances late at night, um, I do tend to, ask for a taxi or pay for a taxi because I just yeah it's tra- traveling the world as a sort of gender non-conforming person whatever one means by that can be precarious yeah it, and it really honestly is and so once you know if you're looking when I was scraping a living together you, you know you can't ask for a taxi you can't do that yeah. because you don't get the gig so it's a you know it's it's absolutely systemic and but people no- don't like to hear that because they're like, you know, if you're not tough enough to make it in the clubs, then, you know, you don't deserve to be a comic. It's just like, no, once I'm on stage, I'm really, really good. But yeah. <laughs> It's this understanding that equality and equity are different things. And this mm. is not that they need to give every performer a taxi to be equal. It's that every performer needs to have a way of getting home safely. And the issue there becomes, you know, you don't then get grace to hone your craft. You actually have to be the best as soon as you get on stage because there's been concessions made um and so that puts you know and uh, you know even to a certain extent just being a woman on stage when i was first starting out like because there's only ever one woman on on the bill uh, back in that day um it's been proved incredibly uh of late but because you're the only woman on people were just like, well, you represent all women. Now, if you suck, all women suck. Like they were ready to just then say like, you know, your, your point of difference, you're representing everyone with that point of difference. And this is why we don't book disabled people because you're rubbish. <laughs> we had one before. <laughs> it didn't work. No, I think one of the, so a lot of, I, I, I am one of those like looking for the silver lining type people. I think one of the silver linings to me of being unable to do the really kind of grim, tiny club type jobs has been that I have been able to have my access needs met. Um, that I kind of started out doing uh, doing poetry performance at a trans night curated by C.N. Lester called Transpose, um, which was which was at the Barbican by that point, um, and meant that like I was able to. I didn't necessarily ask for a taxi, but I asked to make sure there was someone backstage with me who'd be travelling back with me or whatever. Um, and being only being in bigger venues did mean that I had access to those things. Yeah, the, I mean, what what is incredible to me is like the the sort of spaces that we don't have access to. Or you know, I could I could I could get in there, but they you know, but they're horrific. They're really difficult spaces to navigate for everybody. Like no comic I talk to goes, oh, I love backstage. I love doing those gigs, but somehow that's where it's landed. Like that's the reality of the world. And they're like, this is how it is. And it's like, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be inaccessible. It doesn't have to be hostile. It doesn't have to be blokesville, McBlokesville. It doesn't have to be any of these things. 
people are resistant to change, even if it is obviously going to be better. <laughs> yeah, I, especially if that change is going to let new people into the space because the old people are like, well, we're full, no more room, no more, none. I guess before we wind up, I just wondered quickly, because like I said, when I was asked about artists whose work had sort of inspired and affected mine, uh, yours came to mind instantly. I was wondering whether for you there were particular artists that you would look back to their work and think, ah, oh, that really resonated, shaped. I, I'm always asked this and I, it always trips me up because it's just obvious. I think obviously something I just think about the least. The way I've approached stand-up is not through stand-up. I think a lot of my humour has been shaped, my, my, my skills, my, my tools have been shaped by trying to navigate the world with autism. Um, it turns out, you know, turns out that's what it was. I had no idea. But as far as performers go, without drawing anyone out specifically, the, the Edinburgh Fringe was in, was incredible space to be able to perform in. I don't necessarily subscribe to the hell hole swamp of you know, draining your will to live the, the, the experience actually is, but with a bit of distance, <laughs> it's an incredible thing to be a part of in that you can see so much different stuff. Like I saw so much theatre and I don't come from a place where there's any theatre. So, it's, you know, and, and I was so poor, like I've always been poor until very, very recently, like just being poor. Um, so going to see shows was outside of my my options. And once I was starting to do comedy, I could see comedy because I was part of comedy. But during the Edinburgh Fringe, I could see all the work. And I loved watching puppet shows. And like, I was just, because you, you go on on your artist's past if you can and daytime shows. Oh, I love daytime shows. So that whole experience, you know, because I, you know, my first year of doing comedy, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe and did So You Think You're Funny. And that was really, you know, I don't know that I was there and had that story where I can go, oh, I want to do this. It's sort of like, it sparked a curiosity in me that I hadn't, I hadn't experienced before. And it was a really important thing that, and the, the, of course, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, where people can just create shows and put shows on. It's not limited. It's not curated. You know, it's, it's a space that was open to someone like me who had no experience, no connections. No, I didn't know people who could help me. I could just, you know, the infrastructure was there, so to speak. So that was, that was incredibly important. And then, you know, once there seeing Bridget Christie was a, was a really important performer for me as a stand up. Uh, and one of my favorite performers is, is Zoe Coombs Ma, Bossy Bottom of the stand up show. I should write a list, shouldn't I? What about you? I don't know why I wasn't expecting you to ask me that question, but I definitely wasn't. So I now know how you feel with the like, <laughs> it is. um, I guess for me, a lot of it has been poetry influences. Um, so a lot of kind of procedural poetry where you're working within a set of rules. So the most famous thing was a guy called Tristan Sara who literally just pulled phrases out of a bag and called it poems. Um, but I found that by setting quite tight rules around what I was and wasn't allowed to write, that kind of forced me to learn what I was doing. Um, I got a lot from Nicaraguan revolutionary poetry of all places. Um, wow. AIDS poetry, um, reading about how people grapple with mortality in a confrontational way was what kind of got me started. And um, I was performing poetry as sort of poetry sets, not, not kind of performance poetry really, but poetry readings. 
and then that was through C.N. Lester, who's been very much a kind of mentor to me. They wrote a book called Trans Like Me, which was really brilliant. And then through that, I kind of got into spaces where I was working with things like directors. And then that inspired me to start looking at how I shaped work. So it wasn't so much that there were individual artists as that at each stage I worked with, or once I was at the barbican, it'd be a lighting designer. And then I'd have to think, how do I want my show to look? And that would force me to start considering the visuals. And then at some point, um, a producer at the barbican said I should apply for their residency and try and turn my work into a solo show. So I did. Um, and then that was kind of how that happened. That's, um, you've just described also how most people dig themselves out of trauma. It's just like it's, it's, a, it's a mosaic of, of grasping, really. Um, so that's kind of a great way to, you know, uh, view inspiration. You know, maybe that's why I struggle to just put it down to one person because I know there's so many different experiences that, and, and seemingly unrelated to what I do. Yeah, or I'll read a poem and catch a phrase and then three months later I'll have written a poem that was inspired by that phrase and I won't even have realised it because it was three months ago. I don't remember the context this came about, but people were talking about, like, you know, what helped people get out of a, a, a deep state of depression. I believe it was a podcast because I wasn't involved in the conversation, but it made me think about a moment that did it for me. And for me, what it was is, like, I ordered something online and it was just a thing for a little fad I was going through. And then by the time it arrived, I was no longer doing that thing, but they were clamps. And it's this box full of clamps that I could, I still, I didn't know then. I don't know now. Like, what did I want these clamps for? But I had this box of clamps as a nice reminder of like, that's what actually made me laugh for the first time in about six months when I got those. And that's what jumpstart out of a very deep funk I'd been in. Deep funk makes it sound funner than it was. It does, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I once read a theory by a depressed physicist, which said that what he did was every time he chose to do something, he clapped, he clicked his fingers. I can't click my finger, so I was like, this isn't going to work for me. But <laughs> what it, I, I realised that the finger clicking wasn't an essential part of the experience. It was more that you did something to mark it. So he was like, if you're so depressed that all you can do is open your eyes, choose to open your eyes and then mark it by clicking your fingers. And that as you notice yourself making all of these little choices, you start to feel like you've got more control over your life again, which helps you get more control over your mood. And I mm. found that really helpful when I've been in deep depressions, like just to mark that I can actually still make a choice, even if that choice is just to grumble, go away at anyone coming near me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little battles. <laughs> it's me clicking. <laughs> I might end up no, making fair. a different sound. I don't even think the sound bit is essential. I think it's just doing something. I think it has to be physical to externalise it, though, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember at one point just using... Otherwise very... you fall asleep. It's like counting sheep. Oh, I can fall asleep anywhere. It's, it's dreadful. With the it's second night of not dying, I was on stage um, and I start the show on stage and suddenly my support worker in the wings realised that I'd fallen asleep on stage while the audience was filing in. And she was a bit like, how am I going to wake up my performer? But luckily the Barbican's like pre-show announcement woke me up. Nerves must inspire you in a, in a roundabout way. I think it's ventilation and breathing. If I'm still for too long, I don't breathe very well. But it was a bit like, I was like, hmm, I need to make sure that I don't start my shows asleep on stage because that's not going to bring me into the right mood. Or the how audience. Long, no, how long <laughs> will they sit there watching me sleep before they're like, hang on, 
That's yeah. performance art. Thank you so much. This has been a really, really interesting discussion. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I've learned. As have I. That was Jamie Hale and Hannah Gadsby on the Barbican podcast, Nothing Concrete. Next week, Dickie Bowe, an actor and winner of the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Trust Award, best known for breathing new life into lip syncing. He'll be speaking to his mentor and friend, Fiona Shaw, the actor and director, whose career on the stage and screen includes extensive work with the Barbican, the RSC and the National Theatre, alongside popular roles in Harry Potter, Killing Eve and Fleabag. But until then, subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting The Barbican by texting Barbican followed by the amount you'd like to donate, for example, Barbican 5, to 70085. Thanks for joining us and goodbye for now.